Thank you, um, choir and Craig, for leading us in worship. Uh, if you've read the text for the sermon this morning, that was an incredible declaration um, of what we're going to be studying this morning. And thank you especially to Sam Gillum, who, who wrote that, that hymn. That was uh, just, again, a perfect uh, declaration of this psalm. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead and ter- open them to Psalm 53. Psalm 53. When you get there, you'll see that it's a short psalm. It's only six verses. But this psalm is loaded with doctrinal truths that I believe are uh, foundational for our worldview. Um, and this psalm has everything. It really has everything. Just as a quick overview, Psalm 53 focuses on the beliefs and behavior of those who reject God. Psalm 53 highlights the corrupt and sinful nature of the world. It emphasizes an omnipotent God who is ruling over his creatures and who judges sin. It highlights the inevitable judgment of those who oppress and attack God's chosen people. And it longs for the great day of salvation when the people of God will rejoice over the restitution of all things. So Psalm 53 has everything. It is an incredible psalm. It has become one of my favorites as I prepared for this sermon. So um, I look forward to fleshing these truths out with you. But I'd like to begin by reading the first, uh, uh, the first six verses, or all six of these verses, so that they're fresh on our minds as we dive into each verse. Verse 1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from the children, from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Now, this is one of nearly two identical psalms in the Bible. The other is um, with the same statement. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The other one is Psalm 14. Um, This is a message, though, for atheists. Now, the minute I say that, most of you are thinking, okay, well, I can, I can go ahead and tune, out, t- tune this out. Uh, it doesn't really apply to me. But here's the disturbing thing about this psalm. It is a, this is explicitly applied to each one of us. This whole psalm is about the universality of human depravity and unbelief. This is one of the key texts in the Old Testament that talks about the doctrine of depravity and the doctrine of universal guilt and the fallenness of the entire human race. And it makes clear that at the very heart of our sin problem is a rebellious heart of unbelief. There is an element of atheism in every one of our hearts. And this psalm exposes that reality and it condemns us all. And it shows us in the plainest possible language how thoroughly and completely sinful we are. This is a truth that we don't often think about, and we don't like to think about it because it causes us to come face to face with the reality of our guilt. But there's no way to escape the verdict of this psalm. Here we see 
the awful state of all humanity apart from the grace of God. And we learn that if God did not intervene to save us, to bestow on us his grace, um, we would be uh, not only lost, we would be the most contemptible in our evil doings as some of the most debased, degenerate, degenerate criminals who ever lived. There is atheism in our hearts, and this is not an easy truth to confront, uh, much less to embrace this truth with open hearts. You know, our tendency is to look for excuses. Our tendency is to tell ourselves, well, we're not really as bad as the psalm is saying that we are. Or more likely, I think most of us look at others and, they, and we tell ourselves, ah, well, we're not really as bad as they are. And so, as we work our way through this, our text this morning, let yourself be convicted by what this psalm is saying, and do it with a chastened heart, a repentant heart, because any other reaction to this psalm simply proves that you are indeed infected by the very kind of atheism, very kind of unbelief that is exposed and condemned in this psalm. So, by way of introduction, this is a psalm of David, the great king of Israel. It was written to the choir master or the chief musician. Um, so, this psalm was not for private use, um, but rather it was to be read and sung in public worship. It's a purely doctrinal song. It contains little or no praise, um, but it, it is a musical lament, really, on the themes of fallenness and corruption and guilt. And it is a bitterly, bitterly sorrowful psalm, teaching an important doctrinal lesson about the utter sinfulness of all humanity, which is not exactly material you would think for making a joyful noise, is it? The doctrine this psalm deals with, again, is the doctrine of human depravity and universal guilt. It is a distasteful truth, but as we'll see as we move through, it is a necessary one. Now remember, the psalms are psalms of worship. And the very start of worship is the confession of our sin. Not just the reciting of a list of some specific acts of sin, but a wholehearted confession of our thorough sinfulness. So we are not just guilty because of certain things we've done, but our true guilt lies in the awful reality that we are sinful to the very core of our being. This is a song of depravity. It is a confession of woe. The psalmist is not aiming to write a popular song here. I think that's clear. There's just no way to make this doctrine appealing or... or, or uh, interesting um, to, to the fallen man or to the human mind. It's not something that we celebrate, and yet the very first confession that must be made by every truly worshiping heart is an affirmation that our own hearts are helplessly fallen and miserable, and we are totally powerless to redeem ourselves, which is interesting because that's not exactly the type of worship songs that are coming out today, is it? And yet here this psalm is, for the singing in public worship. Now remember, this is an inspired hymn, which suggests to me that didactic hymns, or hymns that teach doctrine, are just as appropriate in worship as songs of direct praise to God. And a lot of people believe that nothing but praise to God should be sung in public worship. But here we see that God himself inspired songs whose sole purpose was to teach doctrine, and in this case, doctrine about us. 
It's too bad that most of the worship songs released today have pretty much removed all doctrine from their songs. So this song of worship, Psalm 53, reminds us that the purpose of our worship is not to make us feel good, but to convict us and actually make us feel bad about ourselves and thereby remind us of our desperate need for the grace of God. So the theme of this psalm is the doctrine of human depravity, the judgment of God on sin, and the restoration of all things by God himself. And frankly, I don't know of many modern worship songs about those things, but this song is. The Apostle Paul actually cites this psalm as the definitive um, centerpiece in his argument on the doctrine of depravity in Romans chapter 3. And when Paul gets to human depravity, this is the psalm he goes to, okay? So Psalm 53, this is what I want to see this morning. Psalm 53 graphically describes for us four awful truths of the ungodliness with which all of us are infected. This will be our outline. So this morning I want to expound these four fruits of ungodliness for you. The first is folly. You see this in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now what the psalmist has in mind here, I believe is more of a practical atheism than a theoretical or philosophical atheism. And what do I mean by that? A person who is exhibiting practical atheism is a person who is living as if there were no God. Practical atheism does not intellectually reject the evidence of God, but they think, feel, and behave as if there were no God. Um, And after all, the fool says this in his heart. So it's a conviction based on the will and not necessarily the intellect. The fool says in his heart there is no God. And if you think about it, all forms of disobedience are, are really a form of atheism because if you really believe that God is God and that all he says is true and that he is a consuming fire, if you really believe that, you would obey him. Disobedience always has some degree of disbelief at its root. And so the atheism that's described in this psalm is a type of practical atheism of which all of us are guilty. All forms of disobedience and belief are sheer folly. It's sheer folly because it's foolish to say there's no God. And it's equally foolish to live as if there's, there's no God. And it may be the greatest folly of all to profess faith in God and yet live as if he did not exist. Now, what does the psalmist mean here when he says fool? Um, the, the fool in the Bible is one who lacks wisdom. It's one who lacks understanding. Psalm 92.6 says, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. So they lack understanding. They lack a basic wisdom and an understanding about God and about the world. But there's also a lack of moral compass in the fool. Proverbs 14, 16 says, one who is wise turns away from evil, but a fool is reckless and careless. So there's a lack of moral obligation to the fool. And as I said, it is stemming from this unbelief that is so pervasive within his heart. Um, You know, the fool aggressively and intentionally flouts his independence from God and therefore God's commandments. God is not important in his life. 
In fact, he shuts off the affairs of this world from divine intervention and denies any personal accountability to God for his actions. The fool is one who feels the innate sense of God within him. He senses God on his conscience. He senses God when he looks at creation and he he ponders the complexity of life and the world and he knows intellectually it would be stupid to deny God's existence, but in his obstinate stony heart, he tells himself that there is no God. Why? So that he can live a certain kind of life. You see, if the fool were to admit that there is a God, he'd have to be held accountable for how he lived. And he doesn't want that. Um, Alan Ross comments on this verse, and he says, quote, the chief characteristic of the fool is the decision to live a godless life, to live as if there were no God. I think that is exactly what the psalmist has in mind here in verse one. And that, of course, is contrasted with Proverbs 1-7. We all know it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fool disregards God's instruction, God's wisdom, God's commandments, God's rules, and therefore lives a life of utter folly. And again, it's, it's not necessarily because he's intellectually convinced, but because, but because he has decided it with his will and his heart. He lives as if there is no God, which stems from the unbelief that is so pervasive within his stony heart. Now we must ask another question. How does the folly of unbelief and ungodliness in this text manifest itself? And that leads us to the second fruit of ungodliness, which is filthiness. Filthiness. As I said, this is practical atheism, or living as if God did not exist, um, and it, it always results in moral perversion. Okay? So David here lists several symptoms or results of this folly. Look at verse 1b. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. The result, they have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Corruption, abominable iniquity, a refusal to seek God, their maker. This is what God sees when he looks upon humanity at the time of the psalm. And what I want you to see is that it's exactly what he sees today in 2022. And it was no different early on in history either because God explicitly comments on this all the way back in Genesis chapter 6. So go ahead and turn there. Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 6 in your Bibles. Genesis 6 verses 11 and 12. Genesis 6, 11 and 12. So we've all been studying Genesis for quite a while now, which is why I don't hesitate to just go straight there. Okay? Um, now, while you're turning there, I want to give you, uh, I want you to think big picture with me for a moment. Very big picture. I want you to think about the message of the Bible with a very zoomed out approach. Okay? So if you take the message of the Bible very simply, you could scratch out Holy Bible on the front cover and you could write History of Sin. History of sin. What you have in the Bible is basically two things. The history of sin and the history of grace. Starting with Genesis, through the rest of the Bible, it explains why man needs salvation 
and what he needs to be saved from. And that is basically the story of the Bible in a nutshell. It is the story of a holy God redeeming his sinful creation back to Genesis 1 and 2 by means of his own gracious promises and purposes. And so we, what, what we have right here in the beginning of the Bible is just the history of humanity, um, which put more simply is the history of sin. So the message of the Bible starts with realizing that man is sinful. And so naturally, that is where Genesis has its focus right here at the beginning. It is showing us that creation needs redemption. And it is explaining why man needs salvation and what he needs to be saved from. Okay, now with that as our framework for our thoughts, look at chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all, what does it say? All flesh. All flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Sound familiar? That is almost exactly the way it is described in Psalm 53. God looks upon his most treasured part of creation, man and woman, made in the image and likeness of himself, and he simply concludes that they have all corrupted their way. Every single one of them. Now, what does it mean to corrupt something? Think of contamination. Think of decay. Think of something that was once pure and undefiled and clean, but it has now been spoiled by something outside of the thing itself. Milk is a fine example, right? So you buy a carton of milk, you bring it home, you put it in the fridge. As long as you keep it in the fridge, it'll stay good for a while. But imagine if you took that carton of milk, went home, put it outside in your garage for a week. You know, it, 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 it would corrupt itself. The heat would get to it. The bacteria, the bugs, all the things would come, and it would be this smelly, stinky concoction. It has corrupted itself. It is now dirty. It is now defiled. It is now foul. It is rotten. Now, I use that as an ex- a simple example to explain this. In the Bible, corruption is one of the effects of sin that resulted from the fall of man. In the beginning, God created a perfect paradise, free of sickness, free of pain, free of death, free of conflict. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, sin entered the world, spoiling its perfection. And that sin brought contamination and corruption and decay to not only Adam and Eve, this is the key, to not only Adam and Eve, but to the entire human nature of every person born after them. This is the doctrine of original sin. And it's where this discussion of human depravity and universal guilt and corruption must always begin. Paul, in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, speaking of Genesis 3, says, just as sin came into the world through one man, that is Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What does that mean? Adam, as our representative head for humanity, passed to all his descendants the inherent sinful nature he possessed because of his first disobedience. 
And because all humanity exists in the loins of Adam, we have through procreation inherited not only his eyes and his nose and his face and his legs and his physical characteristics, but we have also inherited his fallenness and his depravity and his sin. And that is exactly why Paul says that all have sinned in Adam. Okay? And so, through Adam's original sin, he corrupted himself with a sin nature and thereby passed that sinful corruption to his descendants. And the book of Genesis, hopefully you've seen this, the book of Genesis simply records the history of humanity, or as I prefer it called, prefer it called the history of Genesis records the history of sin. And we see it on display in chapter 4 with Cain, right, when he goes and he murders his brother Abel. We see it on display in chapter 5 when um, the, de- the repeated reoccurring deaths of all of Adam's descendants, and now we get to chapter 6 and we have the description that I just read to you. And where was all this corruption coming from? Well, it tells us in verse 5, look at it, chapter 6, verse 5 of Genesis, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does that sound familiar? Again, um, that is exactly what it says almost in our psalm, and I think when David wrote Psalm 53, he had the verses of Genesis in mind in order to show that over the several thousands of years that had passed, nothing had changed. The condition of humanity compared with holy God is still the same. There is none who does good. The wickedness was great upon the earth in Noah's day. It was great upon the earth in David's day. Hence, our second fruit of ungodliness, filthiness. Now, the text says that this sinfulness is happening in the heart. So what does that mean? In the Hebrew, the heart is the very center of a person. It's who they are deep down. He goes right down to the very core and the very nature of man. It's who they really are. Um, And don't miss, by the way, that that is the same place that the unbelief arises in verse 1. Remember Psalm 53, verse 1. The fool says, in his heart there is no God. So it arises all from the same place. The heart is the center of man's thinking and nature, and from the heart flows his unbelief, and as a result of that unbelief, his sinful behavior. And it's interesting to note that later on in the flood narrative, in chapter 8, verse 21, God still says this, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So the intent of his heart is still evil, and the flood does not change that. You read in the book of Deuteronomy, later on in the history of God's people, and you read the same kinds of things. Deuteronomy 31, 21, Moses is talking about Israel, and he says, for I know what they are inclined to do even today. And he indicts the people of, of Israel because of the many evils that they are doing. And he, he says, essentially, I know their inclination. I know what they form. I know what they devise. I know what's inside of them. And he uses that same word in Genesis 6-5 as he does in Deuteronomy 31. Um, The prophet Jeremiah said in chapter 17, verse 1, the sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart. Jeremiah's language points to the deep-seated, habitual wickedness of the human heart. And here's the the point I think that Jeremiah is making. 
Engraving in stone implies a permanence. Sin cannot be erased and replaced with covenant fidelity without a supernatural work of God. And Ezekiel said the same thing. He said that the people have a whoring heart that departs from the Lord and pursues idols. Joel Beek says, quote, The corruption of sin is an iron fist, and we cannot deliver ourselves from its vice-like grip, end quote. So in the Bible, sin is not merely a bad choice, but an evil power that rules and destroys. And even when its reign is broken, it still wages war, doesn't it? I can attest to that. I think every believer in this room can attest to that. And the reason why I'm quoting so much from the Old Testament is to show that this is nothing new. Sin has always been creation's greatest problem. And it's common for, pe- for people to think of sin in terms of bad behavior. But the heart of sin is sin in the heart. That's the best way I've ever heard it said. The heart of sin is sin in the heart. Right? And the New Testament, of course, continues this truth. Jesus, in Mark 7, 21, he says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, in the heart, and they defile a person. And so, Jesus says, he says, your, your, your problem is not what's outside of you. Your problem is not your environment. It's not the way that you were treated as a child. It's not that you were misunderstood. It's not that you weren't loved. It's not that you were deprived. Jesus says the same thing the Old Testament said since the third chapter of Genesis. Your problem is the sinfulness of the human heart. Your problem is the lack of conformity to the perfect holiness of God. What is this corruption? What is this filthiness? Well, sin corrupts men's speech. It corrupts men's actions. It corrupts men's relationships. It corrupts men's decisions. It corrupts men's mindsets. Everything. Mankind is in the flesh, according to Romans 9.1, which is the fallen state of man without God's spirit. And from this inherent corruption arise all the actual sins that we commit. They are the works of the flesh that are listed in Genesis 5, Galatians 5. Right? That long list just bad things. Those are the works of the flesh that all of us are characterized from birth. This is why our psalm is universal in its decree. There is none who does good, not even one. But you say, you haven't met my grandma, right? Or you haven't met my mom. She fosters children. She can't say no to someone asking for money on the street, right? The scripture is clear. I'm sure they're great people by human standards, but the, the scripture is clear. No one is good. The question is, to whom are you comparing the person to? In God's eyes, he is the only standard. And that standard is infinite moral perfection. Okay, And so this is the doctrine of universal guilt, which flows from the doctrine of human depravity. So the doctrine of human depravity does not mean that every person is sinful to the greatest degree that they can be. 
It does not mean that people have no conscience or awareness of sin, right? Even totally lost people know when they kill someone, they have that guilty conscience, right? So it doesn't mean that. It does not mean that sinners lack all appreciation for moral and compassionate behavior, or that every sinner approves of every kind of sin, right? Human depravity means that corruption infects the whole person and stains every act he performs. Paul in Titus 3.3 says that corruption infects the reasoning, the willing, and the feeling of man. Edward Reynolds illustrated this truth by saying that, quote, just as there is saltiness in every drop of the sea, so there is sin in every faculty of man, end quote. So we must understand this. This is the depravity of man when compared with the holiness of God's, of man's creator. And again, this is not to say that every man is equally as vicious or equally as murderous or that every man is equally as proud or equally as violent. But it is to say that every human being is at heart a sinner, unable to form or shape or conceive or design anything in himself that is not wicked. Every human being is left to his own desires, and without a work of the washing of the Holy Spirit upon his life, by faith in his Creator, every human being is a sinner to the very core, and there's nothing in and of himself or herself that they can do about it. That is why this psalm is so penetrating in its universal claims. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good. And as if he knows someone in their foolish pride is going to give a rebuttal, he even adds at the end, no, not even one. The truth is, Isaiah 64, 6 describes all people's sad condition. All our righteousness are as what? Filthy rags. Filthy rags. 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And as I said earlier, the Apostle Paul quotes our psalm and many other Old Testament passages in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. So go ahead and turn there. Go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. He uses our psalm to prove that this is nothing new. Okay? So Paul in Romans 3 gives one of the most clear and quintessential arguments for universal human depravity and guilt, maybe in the entire Bible, and he quotes our psalm. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. We read it in the service today, which I appreciated. Verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, there's that all again, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. This is God's case against humanity. 
This is what God sees when he looks upon his fallen creatures. From the bottom of their feet to the top of their head, they are corrupted with sin and abominable iniquity. So that every mouth is stopped, he says. So that everyone is held accountable. And not only have we sinned throughout the entirety of our lives, but you continue to sin in the present, so much so that Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. One man illustrated this truth vividly by using scales. He says, you know, imagine that there are these scales, and your entire life is put into one side of the scale. Every thought, every deed, Every action, every reaction, every word, the entirety of your life's record, every sin, every transgression is placed in the scale, and you are weighed in the balances. And on the other side of the scale is not the average morality of the culture. On the other side of the scales is placed the glory of God. The sum and the substance of all that God is, his holiness, his righteousness, his intrinsic glory is placed on the other side of the scales, and our life is placed on the other side of the scales, and we are all fallen short of the glory of God. The verdict is universal. We are all guilty before holy God. There is none who does good, the psalmist says. We are all filthy. So you want to know what's wrong with Washington? It's human depravity. You want to know what's wrong with Hollywood? It's human depravity. You want to know what's wrong with the abortion mills and transgender operations and homosexuality and child abuse? You want to know what the problem is? The problem is the filthiness of the human heart. Do you want to know what is driving the multi-billion dollar a year pornography industry? Do you want to know why half the marriages in America end in divorce? Do you want to know what drives racism and gun violence and wars? Do you want to know what's wrong with you and me? It's human depravity. It is a fallen corrupted with sin world. So, humanity is filthy. They are iniquitous. They have all been corrupted with sin, according to Paul in Romans 3 and David in Psalm 53. But Paul and David make another important claim in these passages. This filthiness and corruption prevents us from truly seeking God. Look at verse 2. Turn back to Psalm 53. I want you to see this clearly. God wants us to seek him. The Lord, verse two says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. So he's looking for people to seek him. It's our duty to seek him. It would be the normal um, thing, expected thing for creatures to seek their creator and to worship him. And scripture is full of commands for that. Isaiah 8, 19 says, should not a people seek unto their God? Or Isaiah 55, 6 through 7. This is one of the the most tender appeals for divine grace in all of Scripture. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. 
Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And so again and again, God is urging sinners throughout scripture to seek him, pleading with them. But do they seek him? Here's the shocking truth that this psalm is aiming to teach us. Left to ourselves, Not a single one of us would ever truly seek God. Despite all of his tender pleas, no matter how much we experience his goodness or benefit from his common grace, not one sinner ever truly seeks God on his own initiative. Man is so enslaved to sin that he is unable to seek God apart from God's empowerment because, after all, the Bible teaches that man is spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. Think of an unresponsive corpse just lying on the ground or lying in a casket. You're at a funeral. Is that dead corpse capable of seeking anything? Are they going to be responsive to stimulus? Or better yet, think of dry bones lying in a valley. Ezekiel 37, right? Did the dead dry bones make themselves live, or did it take a supernatural work of God? Ezekiel 37, 5, thus says the Lord to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and I will cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. It was a supernatural work of God. So, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless it is what? John 6, 44. What does he say? He says, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Why can't they come? Because their hearts are so sinful they won't come. They refuse. They have stony hearts. They are obstinate to God. They are spiritually dead. Jesus told the Pharisees in John, John 5, 40, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. This is what scripture teaches about humanity before regeneration and salvation. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, in, the, in their case, that is the, the laws before Christ, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So, those sinners have physical eyes They are spiritually blind to God's goodness and greatness. Though they have ears, they are deaf to his word. And they will remain in this state until God himself gives them new hearts with new spiritual perception and love for him. Therefore, man is in the state of sin. And though he may be outwardly civilized is a slave of sin and an enemy of God, and he does not truly seek him. Though he still has all the faculties of human nature that God gave him at at creation, he is so empty of spiritual goodness and so corrupted by sin that he is unable to serve God acceptably. He does not grieve over his sins except insofar as they bring him trouble. Perhaps I can illustrate this truth most vividly like this. If God himself were to come down from heaven and teach man about righteousness, about sin, about salvation, about man and his depravity and obstinacy, 
Man would do everything in his power to destroy God. We see this nowhere more clearly than in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Folks, this is where it all starts. We have to understand this. The reason why we sin is because we are a sinner. This is where redemption starts. It starts with us realizing that we are sinful and wicked and without hope in and of ourselves. The gospel does not start with Jesus died on a cross for you. It starts with teaching the person first who God is, his holiness, his justice, his glory, his infinite wisdom, and throwing from that that they are an unworthy, corrupt sinner when exposed by the light of God. And if you don't have a grasp on this truth, you will never have a grasp on what it means when we say that Jesus died for your sins. So, David in Psalm 53 continues highlighting key fruits of ungodliness here in verses 4 and 5. We've already seen verse 1, the folly of the ungodly in their obstinate unbelief, and we saw the filthiness of, the, of ungodliness in verses 2 and 3 as that unbelief permeates into their living, and now in verses 4 and 5 we have the third fruit of ungodliness, which is fear. Look at the text with me. Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. The wording in verse 4 suggests that God himself was astonished at the folly of the wicked. The language is anthropomorphic, as if God was finding it hard to believe the depth of depravity of these people. He says, have they no knowledge? Are they really that ignorant? They are so spiritually blind, they do not realize what they do. Or they, they know what they are doing, but they do not realize the significance of it, nor do they really think that, any, that God will do anything about it. The ungodly are characterized by two things in verse 4. Devouring God's people and not calling upon God at all. These two things are always characteristics of those who do not know God intimately. They are people who harm others. They are cold-blooded. They devour God's people as easily as they eat bread. A refusal to acknowledge God and a callousness in relation to other people go together. Always go together. And, And the thing with the ungodly is that they always think that they will get away with it. If these people had any understanding of the nature of God, they would know that he is a righteous judge, and they will be judged for their sins, which is exactly what verse 5 suggests. There they are in great terror, where there is no terror. So the ungodly live in fear, even when there is no cause for fear. And ironically, what they ought to fear, they do not. Romans 3.18, in that same passage I was reading earlier, says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. One of the fruits of ungodliness is a cowardly, craven fear. See, there are two kinds of fear described in Scripture. One is the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. Luke 12.4 says, Jesus says, I tell you, friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him 
who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Psalm 111.10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have good understanding. But here in Psalm 53, David has already established that he's describing people who reject God. They have no legitimate fear of him. They mock and they scoff at God and his people. They don't keep his commandments or praise him. Therefore, they are left with an irrational, ungodly kind of fear, and it's wrapped up in the world and its problems and its pleasures and nothing to do with the fear of God, which is exactly what they should fear. And the reason why they have this rational fear wrapped up in the world is because they do not have their fear rightly placed. It's a coward's fear. It sees with hatred of God rather than reverence for him. Verse 6 brings us to the fourth and final fruit of ungodliness, and that is failure. Failure. So, sometimes it appears to us, from the human perspective, that the enemies of God have virtually triumphed. There may be times when the people of God are tempted to despair, thinking, what if evil ultimately triumphs over the purpose and plan of God? But verse 6 shows that that will never be. No matter how pervasive evil appears to be, no matter how dominating it may seem, it can never triumph over the plan of God. And human history is, is proof of that, and biblical prophecy is the guarantee of it. Verse 6, the ESV says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. The ESV to me sounds like a wish, but the New American Standard translates it as a settled indicative. It says, when the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice, Israel will be glad. So there's a note of emphatic triumphalism in the declaration. There is a certainty in those words that cannot be shaken by doubt. God will ultimately deliver his people, and that means that the ungodly sin and evil will ultimately fail. It will fail. Zion is usually an equivalent word for the city of Jerusalem. And the wording used in this declaration is characteristic of all the prophetic writings as they describe the coming day of the Lord. Isaiah saw it this way, Isaiah 59, 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgression, declares the Lord. So this in verse 6 is a picture of Messiah coming at his second advent, judging the ungodly and setting up his millennial kingdom in Zion, in Jerusalem, to rule and to reign. Zechariah chapter 14 said it this way, On that day, living water shall flow out of Jerusalem, or out of Zion, half of them to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. Jerusalem shall dwell securely. End quote. The prophet Joel describes it this way in chapter 3, verse 17 through 21. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord in the water, and, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and 
in Edom, a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. And then verse 21, last verse of the book, I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. The day of the Lord, the final coming of Messiah, will be established in Zion. It will bring ultimate, utter failure for all of the ungodliness described in this psalm. Ungodliness and evil and sin will not prevail. It will not prevail. It will not win. Its ultimate end is utter failure. Complete, eternal failure. All right, now, it's tempting to read a passage like that and to imagine that this applies to someone else. We all tend to think of the most wicked people we know, and we say, yep, that applies to him. But what I want to stress again is that the whole thrust of this passage is designed to teach us the universality of depravity and guilt before God. Look at verse 2 and 3 again. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. This is the state of humanity in the eyes of God. And the verdict against all humanity as they stand in and of themselves is the full and flaming judgment, fury, and vindication of God. God is not a stoic sovereign. He is not mildly indifferent to the sins of the human race. And in fact, Paul says in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So in Romans 6.23, he says, the wages of sin is death. So then, by the contents of this psalm, the death sentence hangs over the entire human race. The entire human race is corrupted by sin and on the broad path that leads to destruction. The entire human race is rightly and justly the objects of God's holy anger and wrath and there will be the unleashing of the fury of his vengeance as the result of the final judgment on the coming of the day of the Lord where, through, where God through his Messiah will judge the wicked on the earth from Zion and devote to destruction those who did not submit to his lordship. This is a devastating verdict. And this psalm and the other passages we've read are the only lens that we can put on to have a Christian worldview and to look around and to see and to understand the state of our world today. So the question is, is there any hope? I mean, is there any hope for the wicked? Is there any hope for sinners? like me and like you? Is, there, is it even possible for us to avoid judgment? Is there any hope? And the answer, of course, is yes. You say, well, what do I need to do? Do, do I need to go out there and do a bunch of good works so I can make up for my sinfulness? Do I need to try and reverse the corruption by myself? Right? No, the text is abundantly clear. There is none who is good. Do I need to go to church more? Do I need to get baptized? Do I need to be more religious? 
Listen very closely because this is the point of the entire psalm and the entire point of the entire biblical revelation. My hope and your only hope is divine grace. Our hope is that there would be one who would come, who would be the second Adam. That there would be one who would come who would be the fulfillment of the type of Adam. Who would come into this world and be born of a woman. Who would be born under the law. Where the first Adam disobeyed. The second Adam has obeyed at every point. He has been tempted in all points such as we are, yet without sin. Having lived a perfect life of flawless obedience to the law of God... He died the death of a sinner, not for his own sins, because although he was tempted as we are and put to the test, subjected to every enticement, yet he was totally without sin, according to Hebrews 4.15. He is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, Hebrews 7, um, Hebrews 7 says. He knew no sin, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Peter agrees, 1 Peter 1.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He, he was perfect in every way. So why did he die? Why was he crucified? Verse 24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Or put it another way, as Paul says, God the Father made Christ the Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he treated Christ as if he were guilty of all the sins ever committed by those who would believe, though he committed none. He offers his perfect life in exchange for our sin and our depravity. That is the gospel. Peter, again, puts it this way. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter 1.18. So in going to the cross, he bore the sins of his people, and he made the only propitiation there was for the fierce anger of God in the sinless life and substitutionary death of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, and he satisfied the vengeance of God for those for whom he died, his people. And with his death, he bought us with his own precious blood. And with that death, he set us free from our complete enslavement to sin. And one day, he will set us free from the presence of sin when he comes again out of Zion in full glory to rule and reign in utter righteousness and holiness with his people. Through the miracle of regeneration, God can change our hearts and our minds from the utter corruption and iniquity described in this psalm. He gives us a new mind, a mind that can understand. It is the mind of Christ. He gives us a new heart, Ezekiel says. He will sprinkle clean water on you and he will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, Ezekiel says. A heart that has a pulse for God. A heart that can now truly seek God. This is what it means to be a Christian. 
It is someone who is dead to sin, dead to their old life before Christ, and now they are alive to God. They are filled with His Spirit. They love the things of God. No, that doesn't mean they're perfect because we will still have remaining sin. They still have their sinful bodies that are hanging on, right? But, but they don't want to fall away. They don't want to be corrupted by the world and the devil. And instead, they want to have communion with the living God. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away and the new has come. And it is through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross his sinless life through the shedding of his blood that he has washed us from our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he says, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they should be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this incredible psalm and the difficult but necessary truths it conveys. These are truths we don't often think about we don't like to think about because it brings us face to face with the reality of our guilt with our own corruption no one else's there is no way to escape the verdict of this psalm here we see the awfulness of ourselves apart from your grace and I pray that you would remind everyone in this room that there is no good news until we know what the bad news is There is no amazing grace until we know the weighty condemnation that was once upon us. God, if it it weren't for you, if you did not intervene to save us, to bestow on us your grace, we would have no hope. And looking down at your sinful creation, you had compassion. You had mercy. You had love on us. And you yourself came down and dealt with our problem. I thank you for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Not only that he offers those who have their faith in him safety from the judgment of sin, not only that he offers us who believe the freedom from the reign of sin, but most of all, one day when he releases us from the presence of sin, when you literally reverse the corruption and the curse of sin and restore the world back to a place of utter righteousness, and peace and joy for your people. We long for that day, O God, just as our psalmist did in our text this morning. In Christ's name, amen.